Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to People Add Value Experience. I am exceptionally excited for today's guest, Jason Stone Weiss. Not only is he an amazing person and man, he has been a friend of mine for 22 years and my wife's for 23 years. He has had an amazing jersey journey in the military and had some really cool stuff. He is continuing that journey now. Um, he has owned a CrossFit gym. He has owned and continue to own rental properties. And we'll talk about how that has affected him being in the military and still having those outside of his local area and really dig into that. But as of right now, I just want to let him say his current position, which is local here in Florida. Um, because I cannot pronounce it correctly. <laughs> um, and just, we're going to start with, you know, doing that. And then we're going to roll into his backstory and just let him uh, tell us about him. But before we get into that, please like, subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the bell for notifications. And as well, hit follow. You know, if you're on a podcast, you're listening to Apple Podcast or Spotify, there's going to be great content coming along. Um, I have my buddy Logan coming on next week. We're going to talk about business, AI and business. And later on, uh, my friend Stacy Deal, who's an ultra marathoner. She's lived in Antarctica um, and done some other really cool stuff will be on. So let's go ahead and get this journey with Stone started. Go ahead. Thank you. This is, uh, this is really exciting. I'm glad you got a nice little setup here. Thanks. I really like it. So job title is I am the functional manager for the medics at the 96 Medical Group at Eglin, which is a funny title, but basically my <laughs> job is manning, training, and sustainment. So all the manning coming in, the forends, how we're going to maneuver them within the facility, make sure they're getting their training, their upgrade training. We're developing them, putting better medics out the backside, and also how do we sustain that? So we need to keep a ready force, which is always a challenge. So getting people in, trained, well-rounded, and also advancing them. So whether they're at Eglin for two years, five years, or eight years, we're putting better medics out for global force management. Right. And so when you when you do say medics, is that um, like what what's I guess in, entitled in that like position, if you will? So a medic, a 4NO, is a medical technician. They come in with their uh, baseline nursing skills from tech school and their EMTB certification. Many are coming out now with their licensed practitioner nurse certification. And they, uh, or their LVN, their licensed vocational nurse. And uh, so they come through school, then they come through their upgrade training, and you are a medical technician for majority is either ACUs, ambulatory care units, or hospitals. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so how long have you been doing that for? This one, I've been at Eglin since 21. Oh, so wow. I've been doing it about two years. Wow. That's awesome. I had uh, two positions over there prior. I was an inpatient squadron senior enlisted leader. And recently, December last year, I moved over to the functional manager position. Gotcha. And I don't think we said, what, what is your current rank and service? I'm chief now. Chief and Master Sergeant. Of what service? Air Force. Air Force. Okay. Because, you know, chief in the Navy is 
Yeah, it's it's, it's inverted in the That's Navy. That's right. Yeah, yeah, because the the Navy is the E seven. It goes, I think, Chief, Senior Chief, Master Chief. Yeah, and in the Air Force, we go Master Senior Chief. Exactly. It's just really different. The Navy's been around longer, so they, you know, props to the Navy. <laughs> well, they make it easy, at least with the Air Force. is like, you know, once you hit, like, senior, everybody just calls you senior, which my kids love because they think, like, oh, you're old, so they just call you senior now. <laughs> so they would just always call me senior, and they'd be like, hey, senior, you ready? I'm like, stop calling me senior. <laughs> it's it's good when you go into, like, IHOP in the morning or something, and they're like, senior, yep, I got the discount, early bird, whatever else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that works out great. So I, you know, that's our, the current status. So I really just, you know, I'm curious about your journey, you know, how you actually got into the military, like what, how you chose the military, um, you know, going into the enlisted side and everything. So, cause I think if I'm not mistaken, you joined a little bit, um, a little late, a little, a little later than most of the folks that, <laughs> that go yeah. in the military. So can you just tell us your journey, um, up until how you got to the enlisted point? Absolutely. Uh, I'm living in Los Angeles, California. I was working as a medic for uh, an ambulance company down there. And I just uh, recently, prior to that, I was going to college and working and so on. And I was always going to go into business. I just wanted to go into like, you know, business management and so on. Oh. And I had, a, you know, a turning point somewhere through school because it seemed to be like very contractual, which it was like, it seemed to be a lot of, didn't seem as fulfilling. And I just said, you know, I want to do medicine because I figured at the end of the day, no matter if I live rich, poor, good, just get by, I'm helping people. And at the end of the day, I'm okay with that. Wow. And so I went to EMT school and got out, got a job with a local ambulance and then volunteered at the hospital at uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital in downtown Los Angeles, which they oh. affectionately called Killer King oh, and wow. also Cedar Sinai. I would just volunteer there, work in the back, build relationships, and they would allow me to view some procedures and everything. But I was just soaking up information. I thought it was fascinating. I love the whole complexity of medicine and how diseases work and bodies work and everything about it. I just found it stimulating. So I was working as a EMT in downtown Los Angeles because that was the most available job. Nobody wanted to work there. Everybody wanted to work at like the beach, like Malibu or Manhattan <laughs> beach where you're working 24 hour car. You're seeing three, four calls a night, maybe right. at, at that time. And, uh, so everybody wanted to work there and I was like, well, I want to be busy. I want to learn medicine. And they're like, you're going downtown. So I worked, uh, <laughs> basically Lomita, which is a uh, Southern part of Los Angeles that goes to the water. And then it's, uh, Compton, some parts of Watts, some parts of uh, East Los Angeles and Inglewood. It's what they call the South Bay sector. So I worked out there and I was just having a blast. I loved it. It was, it was hard work. And at the time it was very low pay. But uh, so I wait tables on the weekend at restaurants because I was trying to go to school at the same time. But I couldn't afford to go to school and just work as a medic. So I'd moonlight as a waiter. Wow. Which is funny because everybody in LA who waits tables is an actor. So people say like, oh, son, are you, you an actor? I'm like, no, I'm a medic. <laughs> but it, it pays crap. So I got to wait tables on the weekend. So what just, cause I'm sure like it changed, but what was the craziest thing if you remember that you saw while you were there in, in that area? Oh, there was, there were so many and, uh, there, there were so many fascinating things about it. And one, you like really get to learn medicine as far as the whole business of medicine and kind of like the whole industry. You think, oh, I'm going to be a medic. I'm just going to help people. What a beautiful time. But there's, there's a lot more to it. 
but there was like uh oh there's so many I, thing comes to mind i uh i remember this one guy it was in inglewood he was running from a drive-by and he got away from it and then jumped over a fence and snapped his ankle and i'm like oh the bad luck first you get <laughs> shot at and you make oh. it out alive and then you jump over something and you break your ankle oh man and uh there was another guy uh I guess he was in a, a fight with his girlfriend at the time and they were yelling and he like leaned over to eat and she came up behind him and stabbed him right in the side, like right in the lung. Oh, how fun. And, uh, you know, that was interesting. There was so, so many things. I remember like every now and then you always have these, I always think like the things like where you screw up are the funniest cause that's where you're going to learn the most. Right. And I picked up, uh, we got a call for this gentleman for an alcohol program. There's like an emergency program where if you kind of like, you need to come in and detox. So we had to go pick him up and I was like, Hey, you know, we're doing our paperwork and I'm like, Hey, so uh, what's the story, man? He's like, well, I've been drinking for three months <laughs> and I go, uh, straight. And he goes, no, sometimes I mix it with like soda, oh, orange oh, juice. No. And I was like. Hmm. Well, I gotta look, clarify that question. <laughs> Have you been drinking every day straight? <laughs> wow. So yeah, there, there's plenty of them. There was a, but even, even that there, it was, a, it was a lot of hard work, but there was also some, there was a lot of beauty in it. And, uh, you know, you'll have these small moments that just carry you yeah. that are really touching and you get to help somebody. And at the end of the day, you're exhausted, sure. you're tired, you're not very well paid, but you're like, your soul is happy. You feel right. good. And there's sometimes when you're just at the end of the day, you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? But you, you hang on to those moments, like everything in, in life, you hang on to these really glowing moments. And those are the ones that carry you over those hills. Right. Okay. So you have all those little things getting you through those moments, right? Mm -hmm. So, which is, I mean, having those stories in general is pretty interesting. Um, and I do think it's quite funny that, that you're absolutely right. You always see it on TV, like all the waiters or waitresses or actresses trying to come in. So I can only imagine their faces scrunch or whatever. And they're like, oh, inspiring. You're like, no, just a medic, just a medic. That's all I do. You know, that's it. Um, so you did that. How long did you do that? So I worked uh, about two years as a medic. And by the way, yeah, it's, it's true what they say. Like everybody I worked with in the restaurant, they were all aspiring waiters and waitresses or aspiring actresses. Uh, yeah, that's it. And they, everybody had a screenplay. Everybody's going out for a commercial or something. So I was like, this is true. Like, you guys yeah. are all, you know, <laughs> it depends on the place you're at. And the place I worked, it was definitely heavy in that that area. Yeah. So how long were you the EMT? Or EMT I did for? it for two years. Okay. And, uh, you know, just working, living in LA, kind of finding my, finding my own. And uh, it was great. It was great. I really liked it. And working at hospitals and really gave me a lot of insight into the two levels of emergency response versus, you know, hospital operations. And being that the hospitals are too like Cedar Sinai's in like West Hollywood, Beverly Hills area. So mm -hmm. that was a different population versus Martin Luther King Jr. That was County Hospital downtown. Right. Right. So so what was the transition period after the the two years of doing the EMT? Into the military. Or what was next? I guess what was that next? That was the military next. Okay. I was sitting, uh I'll never forget I was sitting uh right across the street from park and it was like in West Hollywood area. We're doing some coverage and I, uh, I was kind of tinkered around. Like I knew I was going to join the military. I was going to do my four years, my civil obligation, you know, and I just thought, well, I'll do this. And 
I just wanted to go to school and develop myself first. So then that four years wouldn't set me back. I can come back and go right back to school and continue with my life. And I was, we were pulling standby, which you do a lot. You sit in the ambulance and you just wait for a call. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, you get, it's a good introspect moment because sometimes you'll be there for 15 minutes. Sometimes you'll be there for three, four hours. Wow. It just, you're just waiting for people to get hurt, which sounds kind of morbid, <laughs> but that's, somebody's got to do it. Yep, yep. And we got to be there for them. So I walked across the street. I got a, the ambulance went across the street to a payphone. If you may remember payphones, they, <laughs> they did exist at one time. And I, uh, I was like, this is, I'm going to join the military. And I didn't really do a lot of research. I went down, I looked at the army cause all my family were all prior army. And so I went in there, I called the army recruiter. I said, Hey, I want to be a medic. He's like, sounds good, man. Uh, hang on. So I was waiting, waiting. And then you had to put more money in and I was waiting. It was like five minutes and I was like, forget this. And then I called, hung up there. And then I just called right back to the air force. And I was like, Hey, I want to be a medic. He's like, yeah, man, come on down. He was like this really cool guy. He had season tickets down at, uh, uh, the Kings hockey. And so, uh, he was just a really nice guy. And we went and, you know, talked through everything and he's like, Hey, here's what you can do. And I'm like, I want to be a medic. And he's like, well, I don't really know if we have medical jobs. And I was like, well, all right, I want to be a medic. And he's like, well, let's test you first. And you do the ASVAB and everything like that. So I did. And I qualified and I went, and uh, I went to MEPS and of course they try to, you know, Hey, how would you like to do this? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you know, whatever. And I was like, I want to be a medic. And so they got me in and then I took off. And at that time I was uh, 26 years old. So wow. my first day of zero week was my birthday <laughs> of 27. Oh no. Why? Was it, it really? Yeah. So like the, you know, you do the, the old footprints and they run you all oh, night. Yeah. And then that morning, well, morning, whatever it was, like four. I remember they played that joke on me. Like, okay, get some sleep. And then you pull your sheets back and they like, get up. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Like, we didn't even get a chance to sleep. But that was my birthday. And, uh, you know, went through there. But I think also joining later in life really helped me because I never fell into a lot of what I viewed as like traps of younger, poor decision making. So, you know, like during tech school, they're like, hey, we're going to get a bunch of beer and drink behind the dumpster. I'm like, that doesn't even sound like fun. Like, you guys have fun. Or they would just do stupid stuff. And then being older, like I was living on my own and I've been basically living on my own at that time since I was about 16. Did you find when you were going through basic and or tech school that you gravitated more towards the other folks of your age, if you will, because of just the maturity set? Or did you end up, you were, you were hanging with the younger populace, but then would divert when they were going to make these dumb decisions? No, there was, well, when you're 27 in basic training, everybody's younger than you. And I, I just wanted to go do my job, you know, and come back. I didn't, it wasn't very physically challenging. It wasn't, you know, task challenging, but one thing I didn't prepare for is just getting yelled at every day. And I and when you're living on your own and you know, paying your bills and working and going to school, you're not used to being yelled at all the time. So I remember I'm just like, and I'm kind of quieter anyways. Like I, I don't raise my voice too much. I, I don't, you know, just like that, but a little bit more of a mellow demeanor. So just yeah. being screamed at all the time where I'm like, wait a minute, you told me to do this. Now you're yelling at me for doing that. And then I did this and I'm yelling, I'm like, Oh, I get this. I get it. Like every, you're always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, catch uh, 22 wrong, wrong. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I, I remember I went there and I just, uh, stood in there like, Hey, who's 
over 20, people raise their hand, who's over 22, who's over 25, finally got like, who's over 25, I think I might have been the only one oh, wow. with my hand up, and he's like, you're dorm chief, and I was like, hey, that's, I was like, roger that, and then I, I remember thinking, what the hell's a dorm chief, and it's basically somebody who gets yelled at for six weeks, and you're responsible for everybody, you know, in the dorm set of your flight, and uh, they were all pretty wild, so I got, <laughs> I got yelled at a lot. But that was it. And then I remember I went to tech school and I'm like, hold I, on, I have a question. Yeah. This is the, the age old question. Do you think, right? Cause we all know them now that the TIs that have come and gone mm-hmm. that they went in and purposely jacked up stuff before inspections or, or found. And if you remember the, cause right BDUs and the pockets mm-hmm. and they pull the strings out of the bottom of the pockets, which you could never, ever get all of them out. Do you remember that? And basic training during those I, inspections? I do remember that, although I don't... There was a lot of people who said, like, they got sabotaged or whatever. Yeah. But there's also... It's... By design, it's set up for... Not failure, but it's set up for correction. And I think it sets the mindset of, like, you can always be better. Right. Like, you can always clip your strings. There's always going to be more. Yep. So it's a never-ending process. It's not like, hey, I clipped my strings, and I'm good now for for the week. Right. And that's really with life. You don't say like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing good. I don't have to do anything. Like you got to continually try and improve. And I think that was it. And also the, by design, you know, the little tweezers when you're doing your, your shirt, well, you're pulling on cotton. So it's going to retract. So it's yeah. always a spot. Like it's never going to be perfect. I never n- known anybody go through an inspection and they're like, Hey man, you knocked it out of the park. You know, <laughs> yeah, everybody was much like the attention to detail part, right? That's what that's I it. remember. Cause they, they harped on it. Like towards the end is like, Hey, you know, beginning end is like, Hey, it's all about attention to detail. And so I did the, uh, I was part of the latrine queen detail. <laughs> and so I got really good and it, I mean, still to this day, right? Like Chrome and mirrors, mm-hmm. like, because you, the reason that we would end up like passing inspections or whatever, because they, they turn the lights off. God, should I be saying these tricks anyway? So you like mm-hmm. turn the lights off and then use a flashlight on the mirror and you can see all the streaks. So that's how they would find stuff is they'd be like, come on in. So we learned, right? Like we learned about that. And then Chrome just like going to town on Chrome or, I mean, you could see there's no difference between looking at yourself, like, you know, or somebody else and then looking in the Chrome and seeing yourself. It yeah. was just super, but I mean, it was a lot. And, and that, you know, carried on for the rest of my life, if you will, is some of those lessons learned and attention to detail, which you can always tell two people that have gone through that. And it's, it's like, it's not something that revolutionizes or changes you. It's just an additional skill set that you bring to the table that I think is, is great. And, and they do it because of, Hey, you're going to be a medic or you're going to go work on, you know, multi-million dollar, billion dollar aircraft. And mm-hmm. it takes the smallest, Hey, if you lose a screw here, I mean, you can completely jeopardize the safety of, you know, the air crew and, or, you know, the actual aircraft itself. So I, yeah, it 100% there's a saying that says how you do everything or how you do anything is how you do everything. And there's another one that says, show me what you do and I'll tell you who you are. Oh yeah. And that's like a great way of looking at it. So it's like, yeah, you're never done. You're never done with like these inspections, but I think it sets that mindset of like, you can always be better. Yeah. And even though it's in a much more forceful environment, it kind of sets that undertone. Right. And our buddy, our buddy Jocko, right. Discipline equals freedom. Yeah. Buddy Jocko. Love that guy. He's not my buddy. Like, I don't know him. I wish I did know him. He's a great guy. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, listen to him. Yeah. Actually on my office door, I have good. Oh, do you really? Yep. It's just on there and I'll I'll probably watch that video. Maybe. (laughs) at least once a month because it's another change in mindset because when you're dealing with, you know, even the military nowadays all the way through is like, you have these, you know, a lot of challenges, a lot of them very complex and complex challenges. Most of the time require complex solutions. Right. And it's just, 
good. You know, ex- explore that creativity. You don't want something cut and dry because that's almost, that makes you lazy where you can just, yes, no, okay, not, okay, let's pull this back. Let's pull these strings apart here and see what we're looking at. Let's get to a root cause. Okay, so we have like a multi-layered problem here that right. requires a chess type solution. So we need to fix it now, fix it for the future, and also make it better for everybody. So those are really exciting. So if you look at everything like good, every challenge, every time somebody says no, or it can't be done, I'm just like, good, let's (laughs) let's get after this. Yeah. Jocko Wellings is pretty awesome. Yeah. I read extreme ownership. I haven't read the dichotomy, um, but him and Leif, Leif, amazing people. So you can tell, right. A lot of building blocks from, from basic. And then Tell me a little bit about tech school, how you experienced that. So where, where did you go to tech school? I went to tech school at Shepherd Air Force Base. <laughs> yeah. the, red, the red draw. Yeah, <laughs> I, I loved it. I had a great time because I, I was struggling prior to the military. I was working two jobs just so I can go to school. And I wanted to go eventually go to medical school after I switched from my trying to do business to go to medical school. But it's so hard. It's so expensive. And I was like, let me get this straight. Like, I just have to go to school every day and <laughs> the gym's open all day. And I was like, this is fantastic. No, no membership fee to the gym. Nothing. I was like, this is fantastic. You know, and dorms are decent, you know, decent enough. They're clean and you, you have a lack of privacy. So you do sacrifice some for that. But the fact that I was just able to go to school purely was something I always wanted. I never had an opportunity to like, there's some, you know, I never had an opportunity to graduate high school and then go off to college and then, you know, go on and start your life. I never did that. Right. So, to actually have an opportunity to just pause and just go to school. It was, it was great. And there was people who were still getting in trouble. I'm like, how, how <laughs> they're getting in trouble or they were struggling. I'm like, how, how are you, you know, I understand like some people, everybody starts on a different starting block, but at the same time, like all you have to do all day is just study and go to school and just not do anything dumb. Yep. But those rules don't apply to everyone. <laughs> people, did, <laughs> people did dumb things. People had trouble, yeah. but I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed the the process. It wasn't that hard. I met your, your wife at tech school. That's right. And no, not no relations. <laughs> relations. She was just, uh, <laughs> she was one of my phase two preceptors where you're doing your hospital rotations. And, uh, you know, she was just fantastic. She's probably one of the, probably one of the most fantastic people I think I've met in my career. It's like one of the, if I look back on my career as like the people I've met and everything, your wife is definitely up there. She's a fantastic individual, which I know I'm telling you something you don't know. But. <laughs> so, so awesome people there, still people getting in trouble. Okay, so tech school, Shepherd, you know, it, it's Waco, right? No, not Waco. Shepherd, uh, Wichita Falls. Wichita Falls, thank you. Wichita Falls. I remember I had to go to school there a short period of time, and I remember the red draw. I was over 21, so I could drink, but it was it's like tomato juice and beer. I don't know if you experienced that. During- no, I, I never went out. Oh, because of the phases. You can only- yeah, it was like the phases, but even when I was able to go out, like it just didn't seem, it was, it was just so complicated. When you go from just being, doing what you want and, you know, living on your own independently, working, going to school, like, you know, my, my own apartment, it was like, everything was fine. So when they're like, hey, you can go off or whatever it is, like four hours, you can't go farther than this. You can only, I was like, man, that's too complicated. I'll just stay here. Then, you know, I'll just work out and study. Yeah. Like I'm not missing anything. It wasn't like you were in, you know, the Bahamas and you're like, oh, I gotta see the water. I may not ever get back here. It's like, I loved Wichita Falls. I had a great yeah. time there. I ended up going back there for another training, but I didn't feel like I was missing anything. And plus I had orders to Germany oh. and I wasn't going to do anything to mess those up because they put the fear like, Hey, if you do this, you can lose your orders. Like, you know, you, you fail one test, you can lose your orders. Right. So I, I just, uh, that, that was enough to snap me in the shape. 
Yeah. As far as uh, I'm just going to make sure I don't have any problems getting Wow. So orders to Germany, huh? Yeah. Uh, so tell me, tell me, I guess, sort of the when you got them, the reaction and then that that uh, move to going overseas and the preparation. Well, I remember when they called me in the office. I think your MTI gives you the uh, the notification. What does MTI it, stand for? Um, military training instructor. The blue, the blue rovers, or was it the MTL? Mary, the military ones who, training like the leaders. dorm, yeah. yeah, the dorm people. Yep, yep. You know, and uh, you know they oversee all the all the young students, which God bless them. They have <laughs> such a tough job. I mean, there's there's a lot of work they got to do. Yeah, they do. And I remember with me, he was like, uh, you know, when I signed up, when, you know, you got to do check ins, and he's like, I don't even know who you are. So you're probably doing a pretty good job. <laughs> Sign my paperwork. And I'm like, oh, there's the seeker right there. Just be the gray man. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And uh, anyways, they called me in there. And they were like, uh, you know anybody in Germany? And I said, no. And was you sure? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And he goes, oh, well, you got orders to Germany. Congratulations. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, thank you. And I walked out. I was like, I don't know what just happened there. Like, am I in trouble or did I go? Like, what was the deal? But, uh. Yeah, at the end of tech school, they came and they did this. Uh, they get, you know, sometimes they have fallout positions, and they gave me an offer to go to uh, uh, Colorado. Mm. And luckily, my instructor was just came back from Germany, so I was like, "Hey, like, I have no idea. Like, what do you think?" And he's like, "Well, I can't really give you any kind of official advice, but I tell you, uh, go to Germany." And I was like, <laughs> "Good enough for me." And so that was it. And, <laughs> Best decision ever. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, definitely was. Yeah, definitely was a great decision. So, so how, so how did you prepare? Did you like, golly, did you just read? Was the, was the internet around? <laughs> I was like, did you look it up on the internet? I'm like, was the internet around? <laughs> okay, this was 2000. So kind of. I, I remember uh, a friend of mine who I went to tech school with. <laughs> when we were leaving, she goes, well, just email me. And I go, all right, cool. And I was like, I don't even know how to do that. Like, it was so new. I didn't have an email account. It was like fairly new. And I'm, you know, I had to like figure out that like, oh, this is it. But no, I didn't do any, any preparation at all. I was, uh, you know, the, the military takes care of everything for you right. for the most part. And so I was just like, hey, all I got to do is graduate here and not get in trouble, get on that flight. And so, and then that was it. And then I went to Germany and, you know, that started a whole nother chapter. Oh, so when you, what was your first, uh, oh yeah, I think it was Bitburg, right? Yeah. Was that your first Bitburg. gig there yeah. in Germany? Yeah. And what, what area or, cause it was at the main hospital at the time? It was, yeah, it was the main hospital. It's fairly small. So Bitburg is an inactive flight line. So they have the commissary movie theater BX and the hospital and housing and the NCO club or the E club at the time and which was great. So it wasn't even like being in the military for that aspect. Cause it's like, I'm in the air force. Like I don't see any planes. I don't hear any planes. It's not like this, you know, hood, 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 like running around right. all, all my family. They came through, they were army. So like my dad was army Vietnam. My uncle was army Vietnam. My grandfather was world war II. So they would just tell me these stories and I just was preparing for a, probably the worst experience of my life. And I was just like, well, I'm just going to do it for four years. And then, 
get out because they never said, I don't remember them telling me anything that <laughs> sounded like fun. Everything they told me sounded horrible. So I was like, well, let me just do this and get, I keep bumping this thing. I was like, let me just do this and just uh, get done. And then I went out there and I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. So I was working labor and delivery, med surge unit. So they do same day surgery and labor and delivery. And it was a fantastic job. It really set my skill set. Uh, going forward, I, I pushed back a little bit before I got there because I was like, hey, you know, as a medic, I worked on an ambulance in downtown Los Angeles. Like, I think my skill set would be better maybe in the emergency room. And they decided to keep me there anyways, and let me, which happened to be the, probably the best decision somebody made for me wow. because it really just, I worked with a fantastic staff and I learned so much. And, uh, you know, it was just a great environment. So it really set my skills. And throughout my career, I can honestly say like, course you develop a lot of skills but those core skills of just that type of uh process in medicine really set my foundation to help me over the edge on a lot of training training evolutions where was, was it hard with the tempo change going from like the emergency room even though like you said there's some downtime being in the in the ambulance but like going from like an emergency room fast paced craziness to like sort of having an expectation while, while there are a lot of nuances right with catching babies if you will and yeah. checking checking that area um but but did that like was that hard to to sort of i guess throttle down if you will like no it wasn't really a throttle down so one it was it was still medicine and i really enjoyed it and actually to see working inpatient being able to see the disease process is so valuable and it's something you can't teach somebody. So when you see somebody come in, who's either getting ill or seriously ill and you watch the disease process over days. And this is labor and delivery you're talking about? Labor and delivery, med surge, because labor and delivery, they'd have a lot of complications. So you see somebody Ah. come in with just like a regular delivery and there'd be a complication during the delivery and Mm. we'd move towards an inpatient. I understand. Who had another complication. So you, you get to see the disease process, how it affects the body and the vital signs and their, uh, all their, you know, physiological mechanisms mm-hmm. was, is a huge learning. And I, you can't explain it. There's tons of books on it, but they say like diseases don't read books. And until you actually see a disease process, you don't really know it. And a friend of mine told me, uh, he was an internal med doc and he's like, that's why we work such long shifts. He's like, we don't do it because it's good for you. It's, we do it because you have to see that full disease process to wow. really understand it. You just can't teach it to anybody. Yeah. So we had, but anyways, as far as tempo, I mean, that was a busy job. I mean, Germany, it rains nine months out of the year. So there is a lot of love in I Germany. See. We were catching 25, 50 babies a month. Wow. So I left there. I think I had like, I did two years on the, in that section. And I think we did, I was upwards of 500 deliveries <laughs> that you were part of or just in general. That was part of. Wow. Yeah. So they were just flying someday, you know, it's like 25 to 50 over a month. So sometimes there'd be five or seven over a weekend wow. and then there wouldn't be any for a couple of days or whatever, but, uh, it was fantastic. I mean, I learned a tremendous amount. It was, uh, definitely set the foundation. Okay, so it sounds like you you were, had the ability to work with some really um, really cool and important people, and that's interesting that they talk about you working the long shifts to see see the disease cycle. In fact, that's one of the, the first times I've ever actually heard that before, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, do, do you feel like that was replicated amongst the other staff as well, or was this like just a couple of p people that key people <laughs> that actually like talked to you about that? It was uh, I was. I don't want to say I was like super motivated. I was very inquisitive. 
So I would ask a lot of questions. And I remember going back when I was, you know, working this, working on the uh, ambulance, when we'd go into hospitals, I would try and talk to like the nurses if they were doing a procedure in a room or something, or sometimes I would just kind of like peek off to the side trying to learn. And they weren't very welcoming. Like you're not going to, you'll maybe get a chance or maybe a couple of nurses will take time if they see you're inquisitive and they'll kind of talk to you a little bit, but they're super busy too. But most of them won't give you the time of day. And you don't even have a shot at talking to a doc, much less a surgeon. Like they're so, you're so far removed from them in a hospital to actually talk to a doctor about something, you know, complex. Like you're never going to get that FaceTime or I never did. But, you know, on the ward, they were, seemed more, you know, in the military, it's such a training environment there. They were, you know, enthusiastic about me being so inquisitive. So they would spend time with me and I'm like, I, I can't believe this. I get to talk to an OB doc. I get to sit with them for two hours, you know, while we're doing whatever I work and, and I can ask anything. And the pediatricians, like all these different docs of all these different specialties and nurses who I can talk to, who are going to sit there and explain all these things to me. And I thought this was just a gold mine of information because I, I, you know, going back, I was fighting so hard to try to learn all this stuff. And here it is, it's just all at the fingertips and you can go to they got classes you can go to and everything. And so I, I really enjoyed it. So I think, I don't know if they, they were all very forefront with being training and explaining these things to me. I don't know if everybody took advantage of it or if people just at the end of the day went home, but you know, I'd work in other departments on my days off. I just thought, I just loved it. And I thought this was like an amazing thing. Amazing. So you were able to do that. They allowed you yeah, to work in the yeah, other areas. I'd scrub into scrub in and go in the OR grant. I wouldn't do anything, but I was able to watch like full blown surgeries and, I could work in the emergency department. I went to different sections and just, you know, can just learn about what they do. And I, I loved it. And I didn't do it like for any other reason, except I was just really inquisitive and I just, medicine always fascinated me. Do you find that you maybe out of your, your peers, if you will, not from, <laughs> not from an age group standpoint, but your, your <laughs> <laughs> do you find that you value that more because of your prior experience? Like you just gave those examples of not even being so far removed from these specialists. And now you have the opportunity that, I mean, they're like, yeah, sure. You want to learn, let's sit down and chat. Like, do you, do you found, did you find through other conversations and, or in retrospect, now looking back, do you find that you had greater value because you did have the prior experience that you did? Oh, 100% because you don't get the, you don't get this this, this information that's so readily available, much less somebody has a patient sit there and talk to you. And within the military, like I couldn't believe that you can do all this. Mm -hmm. You can talk to a surgeon, you know, or they were even more, almost seemed a lot of times happier than I was, or I, you know, they'd be going in for a surgery and I'd say, Hey, do you mind if I scrub in? I'll just watch. But yeah. I just like see it. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Come on in. And, and they liked it so much. They would explain the stuff to me. Oh, come over here. Look at this. See what I got in here. I'm just like, I can't believe this. Like, I just, you know, I get this opportunity to sit here and watch a surgeon who has, you know, years of school and training who's sitting there talking to me and walking me through something. And, you know, everybody in there is very welcoming because they're just like, hey, you're enthusiastic. Like, we want to teach you. And so I was like, I want to learn. That's <laughs> so pretty cool. it was really fun. And it's it was always very thankful. And that that's like that throughout the career. But you didn't, the prior not being able or having to fight so hard for that information and that training and that schooling, uh, I had a greater appreciation for it where maybe somebody who came in younger or didn't have that experience may think like, well, this is the way the world is. And that's when I, when I'm talking to people, I'm like, you don't understand how valuable it is right now. You can talk to, you know, we at Eglin have 
dozens of AFSCs, mm. like upwards of 93, oh, wow. including all the, the medical specialties. Mm-hmm. And everybody's an expert in something. And so it's fascinating. You can talk to, you know, all, and there's, they'll stop and they'll talk to you and they'll explain it to you. And you don't get that opportunity. You can't talk to like, let's say you want to go down, you know, go down and talk to a stockbroker on wall street. They're not, you know, you're not yeah. going to be like, Hey, tell me what you do all day. And he's like, Oh yeah, come on. Let me take three hours of my day and explain sure. it to you. You know what I mean? Right. But you can do it with inside, you know, the military has that training framework where it's like, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And if somebody's asking, it's almost like this, you know, obligation to explain it to them. And, uh, and to just make, makes me better by making you better right. by making us better kind of thing. You bring the whole bottom up, right? Like if you will, raise the, the baseline, it brings the, yeah, raise the watermark. That's right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what did you do anything? Um, like did, I, I want to transition over to the overseas experience because Germany yeah. is pretty amazing. So what did you do outside of work in Germany? So I, I did a few things. So I, I worked a lot of my days off and I'd go in like I was, you know, I wanted to get better at certain procedures. So I'd go in there and, and work and they were always happy to let me in, but I did, uh, I bounced at a bar on the, on the old, <laughs> Wait, what? yeah, I, I don't think I knew this part. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it. It was anyways, I was there having a beer with a buddy of mine and the owner came up and you know, I was a little bigger back then. I like, I was, a, I've always been a gym rat, but I wasn't, uh, I was much more like into bulking, yeah. you can say. So I was, uh, you know, a little larger. I was like camping in the gym most of the time. And so I was a little bigger and he walks up and he's like, Hey, uh, you want to bounce on the weekends? And I forget what it paid. I don't know, like 50 bucks a night and you get like a few beers. And I was like, sure. Like I'm hanging out here anyways. <laughs> and then, so I started doing, I did that on the weekends and, and that was fun. Wait, was what nice. town was that in? It was in the old Bitburg, like the, where oh. the old flight line was. Okay. There was a, an Irish pub there. I can't remember wow. what it was. All right. But, um, it was there. It was a fun place. And I got to meet like a lot of, you know, a lot of locals went there. And so it wasn't just all American. And I really liked exploring. Like I was, when I was in Germany, I was not home. If I was off for a day, I was traveling. If I was off for two days, whatever, I was gone all the time. And I, I wore it out. And also being able to interact with a lot of locals was, was hugely valuable. And I really liked it. And then also, you know, of course, played rugby out there. I was uh, training at the, it's funny how I fell in the rugby as I was training at this. So prior going in, I used to uh, fight, like not in the streets, like <laughs> the gym. I, did. I studied Muay Thai fighting, which um, which I always loved. I, was, I did it since I was about like 14 or so. And I found this Muay Thai place over in Germany and I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I was training with him and we'd travel around and do these amateur fights you know, in, either in France or Holland or, you know, these different places we travel. It was great. And it was a lot of fun. And one day I was training with my coach and he, uh, I thought <laughs> I zigged when I should have zagged and he broke my rib. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and then, so I was basically out for a while and I ended up meeting uh, a friend of ours, Chris Mendoza. Holly. And uh, he's like, Hey man, you should play rugby. And I'm like, what's rugby? And he explained it to me a little bit. I'm like, Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so then that's how I got into rugby. And, uh, yeah, and that opportunity, you know, totally changed my trajectory and started playing rugby for, you know, the whole time I was in Germany. And then my next follow-on assignment, I played it some more, you know, breaking more bones along the way, but I had a great time doing it. Yeah. There's, there's quite a few, it's funny. So previous, not last session, but the session before I had Jim on, if you remember a little bit, I think you guys overlapped just a little bit in the, in the rugby time, Jim got, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. just a little bit of time. 
But yeah, same same rugby team uh, playing for the Trier Irish Pub. That's right. Um, <laughs> so many stories. One day I'll have to have like a we are you know, just on that alone. <laughs> it could be hours upon <laughs> hours of stories in rugby. I, I you know it's interesting. I was in I don't even remember what I was doing. I was in outdoor rec on Spangalum. I was in the outdoor rec. I don't remember what I was looking for. And I was leaving or something. I saw a flyer and I was like, join rugby, call here. And I called yeah. Alf Thompson at the time. And he's like, oh, come out. And I was really nervous. And I can't remember if I was playing flag football at the time or not. And I was like, oh, all right, I'll just, I'll go try it. Right. And so, you know, the very first night and it was in Germany, I think the very first or second night, someone took me down to Trier. So I was like, I love Trier. Trier is amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. So I was like, okay, this can't be that bad. And then just the people, the environment, the culture, and, you know, part Americans, part Germans, they were mm-hmm. playing with the team and talk about getting embedded in the culture. That I mean, it, yeah. they, I, I'm sure there's sayings out there, but like, you know, you, you have these German friends and they become they're, when they're your friends, they're like extreme loyal lifetime. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, just amazing people. And so if you remember uh, Christian Foyette, yeah. shout out. You know, he had the the wine place. He took us to a wine thing, rugby party. Um, in like, the cave. Yeah, in the cave, yeah, man. I remember, oh, that. I remember looking at those pictures and I'm like, oh my gosh. And then like going out and it was great because you always had people you could call like, hey, there's the Burn Castle Wine Fest. Like, who oh, am I going to go with? I definitely. don't know. Let me call some rugby friends. And then you just go. And I will tell you the difference, especially going to England afterwards, is the way that big festivals were approached from a cultural standpoint in Germany comparatively speaking to other countries, again, like England was, I I felt like there was a lot more families that went to it. Like I remember being so surprised as an American going to the wine and then like people were pushing kids in strollers and it blew Mm -hmm. my mind. Cause I'm thinking, okay, you know, I had that stereotype of like alcohol adults, that's it. And they're just walking around with all these kids. And then, and then you go to uh, the pig fest, remember the pig fest and like they had fair rides or, you know, and the, fairground rides, if you will. Um, and it was just like, a bl- and they give you a little, remember the shot glass with yeah. the leather strap oh, yeah. and you just go around and they pour stuff. Oh, it was fantastic. Oh, such good times. But I, I think one of the, the stories I remember, I'm trying to remember if you were there or not, is we played a tournament somewhere and I want to say it was Colm's, uh, probably not pronounced that, Colm, uh, I'm totally. Coon, I think it is. Colm. It's spelled like Cologne. K-O-L-N's. Colm's. Okay. So it's got the, what the Ypsilon or whatever they call it. Two, umlaut. two dots. There you go. <laughs> well done. Muda. It's been anyway. So like, I remember going and, and we went to this club and it was like in the, the walk plots area where the church, you know, the big church is. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh, Americans. No. And they like stiff armed us. And they're like, Nope. And the Germans like convinced them to let yeah. us in. And we were the only Americans in this club. And I just remember thinking like, Holy cow. Like that was so different because we're getting to experience this stuff, right? Like that a lot of the Americans didn't have the opportunity to, you know, maybe they did in other aspects. Yeah. And then the even bigger one was going to play the rugby tournaments in Amaland. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the beach? I did not attend the beach rugby. I thought you went to one. I, I think I went to one, but yeah, the ones you guys went to where you camped out. Oh. I remember seeing the, yeah, that looked pretty wild. I mean, taking a ferry off of Holland to this little island, like no American. Like no Americans. Um, and you just get, I mean, there was like, I think like Dutch, I mean, it was just a, a mix, you yeah. know what I mean? It was like the NATO nation. Anyways, I mean, I was just kidding, but there was a lot of different people there. And also, by the way, playing rugby in sand, game changer. So hard. It's like running in sand. It's oh. brutal. I mean, luckily it wasn't, I mean, the, 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 
the, the field, if you were, was like an eighth of what, I mean, cause mm-hmm. you, there's no way you'd be so a uh, 10 minutes you could and not, you'd be, you'd be you done to do a full pitch. And yeah. So, and you know, it's, it's interesting. I touched a little bit on it with Jim too, but in the, in the German culture, it's so different. So one of the, the stories, I can't remember if I said it last, but, but I was playing volleyball. So we went TDY this place outside of Berlin. We're playing volleyball and this guy goes up and he goes to spike. I'm pretty sure I said the story and he falls down and he like snaps his, his ankle and he's bleeding and all the Germans are running away. And so it's interesting. So did you work with any Germans in the hospital when you were there? Were there Germans embedded in? There was some civilians, uh, not, not many. It was a fairly, it was a smaller hospital, but yeah, we, uh, we had some civilians that worked there who were German. So that was great. You got to interact and also practice my Deutsch. Oh, so, you know, you pick it up really fast playing rugby. So you learn everything like, yes, no, right, left, no. pass, you Luke. know, yeah. yeah, all the, all the good ones. Where's yeah. the bathroom? Call me a cab. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who was, who was your cab driver? I know you remember his name. Ernst. Ernst? I thought it was like, starts with an R. I think it was the Ernst. bigger guy. Maybe yeah, he was, was huge. Courtney's. Oh, okay. Is that his guy? Yeah. I thought it was like d- Ryan. I, no. I it was something I, else. I, I, I Cause you had remember. a guy, right? Yeah. He was awesome. Cause you live by the river. Yeah. By, oh. by the trout restaurant. I remember, do you remember D train? And yeah, D train made that. D-train. I went to a party at your house one time and he did a pork loin like on the, on the grill. Yeah. I think y'all mixed, you collab. Cause I think you made your famous guac. Yeah. <laughs> Still famous by the way. <laughs> Legendary for sure. <laughs> Legendary guac. So yeah, I, I think, you know, there was, there's a lot of aspects of Germany, you know, you work hard, play hard, Yeah, but it was, it was play hard an aspect where I think it was, semi-controlled comparatively speaking to, and I think it was more cultural with the, you know, the personal transportation and all of those. Yeah. Yeah. We never got, and that's what goes again. Like we never, it's like, we never did stupid stuff to get in trouble. Cause of course like DUI is like a big thing, public, you know, whatever, whatever people are going to do with it. Whatever. (laughs) But what we do is like, especially for the festivals is there'd be like, you know, I talked to the cab driver and say, Hey, how much does it bring us to and from the festival? And he's, I don't know, whatever it was. It was like 60 euro each way or something like that. But I'm like, fine. Like there's four of us going. So, yep. and you don't have to worry about anything. And they pull, it's not like normal. Like they drive into the festival. <laughs> so you tell them where you're at. You're like, Hey, I'm by the Ferris wheel, whatever. Like yeah. they'll pull up and pick you up and <laughs> roll you out at your house. I mean, it was fantastic. It was well worth the money. So we never really had to get a, uh, luckily that was that was another part of just being able to think through things a little clear. Yeah. I think my, my, my two favorite stories about playing rugby with you is, and I don't know if you remember this one or not. And I want to say we're playing our nemesis um, oh, worms, worms, worms. Yeah. Um, that you were on the ground yep. and you were getting your head stomped yeah. and in rugby with the metal, there's the yep. round metal cleats. Yeah. And cause you, you had the marks because <laughs> you didn't have hair. Same point, right? Like yeah. you had the big, just, like big boom and then the rake marks on your head. Do yeah, you remember that? I was, yeah, I was I was underneath a, a pile and the way I just went down is everybody, because you know when they go down like, you know, five, six people pile on, I just happened to be at the bottom so my arms were pinned and he just came up and, uh, you know, of course they, they were fairly dirty and we, we returned the favor many times. Mm-hmm. But he was just teeing off on me and I'm bobbing my head back and forth <laughs> trying to miss him. And you came in, you're like, Stony, Stony, and you plowed him off. But he got he got a good five, six shots in before I was able to get out of there. So my head looked like uh, you know, like a cheese grater by the time I came out of there. It was, it was uh adds adds to my character. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then secondarily, holistically, right? If you if you remember, I think the worst case scenario, was it Brian Frog? I can't remember. It was one of the bigger tournaments. And someone like 
broke a clavicle or something. Cause like I did the same thing at the piano bone situation, but I remember like the biggest thing was like dirt and water, right? Like that was their answer to everything. Yeah. That was the, the German rugby. Remember Harry? Yeah. It was yeah. like someone's leg, like their knees pointed the wrong direction and they're like, yeah. get the water and like the Vasa. And then they just pour the water yeah. and like, bro, it's not moving the kneecap back into position. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the- <laughs> I remember when I uh, snapped my ACL when we were playing, they uh, pulled me off to the side of the field and gave me a beer. And so I sit in there and I was like, well, I guess this is it. And, you know, I, could, I couldn't really walk. My knee really hurt. And so they're like, have another beer. And that was their answer. And, uh, yeah, it's a de- definitely a different culture. Also, like, they're medical. So, like, when they deliver, going back to, like, labor and delivery. So when they do, like, a normal, non-complicated delivery, they give them Motrin, maybe. And you just, you stay in the hospital. So for a C-section at the time, you had to stay in 14 days in the hospital, seven days, where our side of C-sections, three days, three or four days. And then like a normal vag delivery is like two or three, Mm -hmm. you know, it's much smaller, but we do a, a, you know, a lot of medications, a lot of care. We like bring them, you know, you bring them their food, bring them their water, just let them recover and spend time with the baby. Where in German hospitals, they're like, no, you're going to get up and walk because that's how you heal. (laughs) Oh, so they're just like, yeah, if you want food, it's, you know, wherever it is and you have to go get it. You want water. You got to get up and go get it. Yeah. And they and you have to bring your own motion. linen, right? Like you have to, maybe. so cause Courtney, we we're talking, I think her sister who was over there at the time, remember Jesse? Yeah. Um, she was over there at the time. I think it's Jesse. And so she was talking about, she had to have surgery one time and like, you have to bring your own linen. And I mean, it's, it's like a whole, I think food like a hostel. too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a hostel with medical training professionals coming in and out. Maybe. <laughs> but they're, I mean, they're, they're, uh, you can definitely tell cause they were stoic. Uh, majority of not, you'd see a, uh, you know, American come in and they would say, Oh, I, I think I'm delivering, you know, and you know, I think this is happening and we, they wouldn't even be close. They'd be weeks away from it. <laughs> but then like either German national or somebody from the region would come in and they'd be super cool and mellow. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, it's a little bit of cramping. You may want to check me and we'll put them down and they're like, deliver 30 minutes later like they just they just so stoic like you couldn't really trust their their affect you know yeah. they come in with facial characteristics you're like oh, are you and they're like i'm you know german citizen you're like get back here they're like prairie dog in it compared to the other one that's just like buried still deep oh, right yeah, yeah you got time you got and they're like oh oh it's coming right now but they're just like yeah yeah they would come in like you know majority like people would come in screaming bloody murder and they'd be like so far out from delivering but you know the locals come in and they're it's so stoic. funny i was just on a business trip and they had and i didn't know this but like the german air force people and you may or may not know this so this is like recent um at a hotel and they're like all there i'm like looking at you i'm like oh spike and see deutsch like oh bitch and deutsch and blah blah you know like oh they're i can't remember it's lafonza i can't say the word for the life i don't of know me. how you remember i couldn't even ask for the bathroom to oh. on the <laughs> it was but it started the weird part was words started clicking from way back in my brain like yeah. now and eshed and like i'm like whoa i how do i remember these yeah but anyway so they all gather they're actually stationed in the states like there is a german dude that teaches at the senior nco academy in maxwell like, did you know no, that? No, I didn't. Bro- that blew my sense. mind. So, you know, I'm, I'm like practicing. I'm like German. I'm like, oh, this is, you know, I said I lived there, played rugby there and all these things. And um, it, 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 it like, I don't know. It blew my mind to see, like, just remembering that. Like it was, it was a time capsule, if you will. Open it. Yeah. But one of the things I was saying was like, oh, do you remember? And this goes back to, it's like, isn't there a saying where like 
Germans go to the basement to laugh and all the Germans start like just laughing their tail off because it's that, that, Hey, we're not going to show emotion in yeah. public, yeah. but like if you're the inner circle, you'll see it. And that's, I think that was part of like the playing rugby experience. Yeah. And like you said, maybe being a bouncer and having those, those locals come in is yeah. you get this whole other side, you know, where if you're American tourist, you go in and you're like, and, and you know, the big thing, and, and I'll tell you just traveling around and you, and you can, I think vouch for this, but if you learn a little bit of the language, just oh, a hair, a hair of the language, man, it's such a, it's such a big deal. Such yeah. A big anytime deal. I went anywhere, I'd study the language for, you know, days in advance and I just learned the basics, you know, yeah. can you help me? Where's this, uh, you know, restaurant, like all your basic words, like, you know, maybe 20, 25 words I'd learn. And they were always really, really appreciated except for Paris. Oh, Paris, they're a little grumpy. Paris, like if you didn't, just my experience, like if you didn't say it perfectly oh. and I kind of fumble through it, I'd have a map and I'd ask him, you know, in, in French the best I could and say, excuse me, can you help me? And they would just like shake their head and walk away. And I'm like, look, look at me. And I'm holding the map. Like, obviously, <laughs> even if I'm not trying to speak French, like, you yeah. know what I'm trying to do, just, to, you know, right. point me in the right direction. But it was, and I, I was always, everywhere I went, I was always be really respectful and, and, I went to like numerous places in uh, France, like Bordeaux region and a lot of the other areas. I made like probably five, six trips to France and the rest of France is beautiful. I've always had the greatest experience and made great relationships and met a lot of good people. And I just kind of attribute Paris is kind of like New York. People are busy and they don't right. really have time for you and it's a hustle bustle. So right. maybe it's not that they're just grumpy. Right. Um, or maybe it is. There's like that saying, like the only thing wrong with, what was it? The only thing wrong with Paris is the people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I think a, it's somebody funny. told me that and I was like, oh, well, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell my experience. Like I had always had great times there, but it was like, I could see the, how people can. The crazy part is like how you could get, like, it's sort of like in the States going to different, being in the United States and going to other States was like being in Europe and going to different countries in Europe. Yeah. I mean, you're driving and I think I, I, I touched on it when I talked to Jim a little bit. It was like, I had a friend come down. We hit five countries in a week. Yeah. Like including Paris. It was Paris. Oh, I'm not going to remember all. <laughs> Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, Holland. And I can't remember the other one. Oh, but yeah. I mean, just like you get on a train like four hours later in Paris or whatever. I mean, just some, I mean, just really easy. Yeah. And like you said, it's, I did have a guy I worked with that like never left the base. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of people like that. Crazy to me. Yeah. Like, I would go to Den Haag. Where is Den Haag? I'm not familiar with where Den Haag. So you got uh, Holland, which. Amsterdam, everybody knows, and then it runs all the way down to uh, Den Haag's like one of the southern parts. They would have, uh, uh, it's kind of like the city of it, but it had the beach there. Oh. It, it was cold as hell, but <laughs> it was nice getting to the water. So yeah. it was like the closest beach you can come to. But yeah, you can do that in a day. Belgium, of course, is right there. Luxembourg, one of my favorite places. Uh, traveling all over, and uh, it, was, it was just fantastic. I don't think there was a spot. I wasn't home much. Yeah. If I was off, I was traveling because I just wanted to take advantage of it. And I, sure. I was so lucky to be living overseas, being paid to live in Germany, you know? So right. I, I try and I did everything I could to get out and about. So you, you did a lot of traveling. You learned a lot. You had the opportunity to speak with, you know, the doctors, the surgeons and all that. You yeah. worked labor and delivery during your off time. You'd go back in work at the different clinics in the hospital, just building that breadth of knowledge and experience so what happened? How, so what, what was the final time frame that you were in Germany? Was it two years, three years? No, I was there five years. So that Holy was my first two cow. years. And then okay. the next three years, I went to the 81st fighter squadron, which is the A-10 squadron. I was, uh, one of the embedded medics with the Warthog, which okay. was 
another amazing squadron. Did you the Warhog? Did yeah. you um, <laughs> did you have to go to any training prior to that, or did, were you able to just go into the squadron with your current training? It was it was just current training. I was able to go through. It was just a move. They try to like move you different departments, get breadth of knowledge. So I went over there as an embedded medic. I didn't know anything about it. They're like, hey, you can go with the F-16s or the A-10s. And I was like, which one deploys more? And they're like, you want to go? <laughs> they're like, well, they both deploy. I go, which ones go to really crappy places? And they go, you want to go with the A-10s? And I was like, okay. So yes. I went over there. And there's a great bunch of folks over there. They're uh, still, uh, you know, uh, know a few of them. And definitely some lessons that I've taken with me from just interacting with, the, you know, all those cats over so there. So were you at, what was, what's that called? Um, what is it? I, I'm trying to remember the terminology. What is it called when you're, that that particular component in the squadron, what is that called? At that time, it was called an SME, so squadron medical element. Okay, it was a flight surgeon and a medic. That's it. Is that when you did my ear thing? Do you remember I had that thing in my ear and it had the little slice to pull it out if it was yeah. a cyst? Was yeah, that yeah. that was that time, right? Yep. <laughs> did you remember that that you did that? I didn't remember that. <laughs> Did it come out okay? <laughs> oh, I still got plenty of stuff going on back there. Oh, I was a pretty daring good medic, I'd yes. like to say. <laughs> so, oh, wow, that's cool. I, I I guess, like, it just right. It just came back to me when you started saying that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. And by the way, A-10s are awesome. Um, the Warhog. So yeah. so you had the ability to do that. What, what did you learn while you were there during that time period? So that you, like, I guess the difference, you've already got a pretty good foundational knowledge here. So what was, what were some nuances that you learned in that squadron? It's just a different, so they're... Um, a CAS plane, so combat air support. So they're very in touch with the ground troops. So it's a little bit different of a mentality. They fly low. Of course, they got to be pointing at their target. They fire, you know, rapid slugs, which come out. It's a Gatling gun with a plane built around it. So it's 100%. a plane that's built to be shot at. <laughs> it shoots, you know, immensely rapid fire. So they got to be really in touch with the ground. Also, it's a high maintenance squadron. So their, their tail, their maintenance tail is huge. So if they go somewhere with like a handful of planes, like the maintenance shop is enormous that goes with them. So they're also very tied in with their, their maintenance. So maybe mm. five or 10 pilots and you'll have 400 maintainers wow. with it. And everybody has to be very special, specialized as far as like, you know, the guns and the weapon systems and things that have. So they're, 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 they're very, uh, grounded, humble kind of guys. Yep. And, uh, I had a great time. Like you couldn't tell, like we all went out together. We traveled together. It was a really fun, fun squadron. And they're Did very... you, were you also responsible for the well-being, if you will, and health of the maintainers as well? Or was it just the flight staff, like the air crew folks? No, it's flight staff and maintainers. Oh, we're taking care of everybody. Too. Just, you know, anything we can bring to them to keep them, keep them going throughout the day. So that's why you're embedded with the unit. So as far as you know, different types of immunizations or cough, cold stuff or anything you can basically treat that doesn't require an appointment at the hospital. Right. You would be there and treat them so they can just stay working. Oh, that's cool. Um, okay. So you did that for, I did it for three years. And then after that, I got orders to Jackson, Mississippi to, uh, and, uh, it wasn't I, the department I was going to, I was, wasn't hugely excited about, but I'm like, Hey, it's something new. I'll, I'll try. I'll give my best effort. And, then a, uh, my NCIC, and this was, was, you know, I look back on very fondly about this because this thing, I talked to him about it at the, after that. And he said, ah, it was really no big deal. I just made a phone call. I'm like, no, you changed the whole trajectory of my career. So what you thought was really small and took you only a few minutes changed my entire pathway of my career. Mm -hmm. And he came up and asked me one time, he goes, Hey, uh, you want to go to, uh, 
Fairchild instead of uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And I was like, sure. And he goes, well, you got to go to IDMT school along the way. And you got past IDMT school. And if you pass. So what's, what does IDMT stand for? IDMT school is independent duty medical technician. It's a uh, military form of an independent provider that can do, you know, simple surgeries, radiology, blood labs, um, certain procedures, like uh, low level, but higher than a medical technician. Mm-hmm. So they're called physician extenders. So like uh, you would take like one physician who would sit at one location and you'll have, IDMPs at six or seven locations and they can communicate with the provider and they have an extended scope of practice that allows them to practice above an EMT basic or above a medical technician. So it kind of extends the reach of a provider because a provider can kind of work on patients, you know, in conjunction with you. And so it's really at that time, I don't, I don't really know what the deal was, but it had like a very high attrition rate. There was a high fail rate. So not a lot of people wanted to go, but Anyways, he comes up and he's like, hey, you want to go to Fairchild? I was like, sure. That sounds great. And he goes, okay, well, let me make a phone call. So then he goes and he comes back like 20 minutes later and he goes, congratulations, you got Fairchild. And I go, that's awesome. I go, where the hell is Fairchild? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, it's Spokane, Washington. I was like, all right, cool. And he goes, yeah, just do well in IDMT school. So there I was back at Shepherd Air Force Base going through IDMT school. And it's about 16 weeks long. And then your follow-on training, of course, a little more extensive, but... You, uh, Wait, how long? Say it again. How long? It's about 16 weeks. 16 weeks. So about four months. Okay. So it's four months. At that time, you had to be a certain rank. You had to meet so many prerequisites. You had to be a BLS instructor, a, you know, instructor in certain medical. You had to be signed off on procedures for suturing, so much of our time and mm-hmm. so much, you know, just a kind of a qualifying package to get you there. At that time, that's what they did. And so I went out there and it, it was, it was difficult. It wasn't too bad. Like we went in there and I just knew same formula, you know, study your ass off, don't get in trouble right. and do all on the test. So I, I did, and I ended up going to Fairchild working at the survival school as a serum medic. And so you're basically a medic that supports all the survival trainings. So you're separate from the hospital and wherever the seer training goes, you go with them. They go to the woods to do their outdoor training. You go with them and it was a fantastic job. I did absolutely they make loved you, it. Did they make you go? Do you have to go through it first? Yes. You have to go through it. And then you go through like pretty much the whole complement, the whole basic complement, water survival parachute, uh, not airborne, just parachute. And, um, and then of course sear. And then while you're there, you get a lot of additional training because they did the search and rescue for the Northwest region. So you flew around on Hueys and mostly anybody who went missing or was stuck in the woods or any kind of whatever was going on there. Uh, you'd fly out there if you're, if you're on that call and go help them. So you had to do, uh, you know, you got your, uh, rescue, uh, instructor. So your like water rescue, your rope rescue, high angle training, high angle rescue, all those. And so it was a good opportunity to get a lot of different training. Plus you're functioning very autonomously because mm. the training area was I think, 70 miles from Fairchild. So you're, real dislocated about probably 30 miles from there is hospitals. So, so when you have things in the field, like you, you had to make some pretty on the spot decisions. So it was really fun. It was like getting out of IDMT school, fresh out of IDMT school. And you had to be, you know, hit the ground running. Right. And what does Sarah remind me? What, what does Sarah stand Survival, for? Survival, evasion, rescue, <laughs> escape, <laughs> resistance, escape. <laughs> 
It's a rival evasion. <laughs> Listen, it's all about the acronym test. During well, the, they, when I went there, it was <laughs> Sear came along like that was the formal name, but it was called Survival School, and like it was kind of like Survival. That was the the name of it, and then they formalized it a little bit more and became didn't become Sear, but it kind of became more of the common speak, if you will. But uh, it was a phenomenal job. I had a great time out there. And from there, they sent me to paramedic school because you had so, to be So hold paramedic. on. So before you go, you have to, there's two, right? You have to talk about the, wasn't there like one pretty big story that you were involved in, right? With the snow halfway up to your chest and. <laughs> yes, yes, there absolutely was. <laughs> you have to tell that story. There was, yeah, there was one. We went out, there was a, a hiker that got stranded in an avalanche and his fiance and his best friend were buried and uh we land we flew out there for we're flying for we flew we came back we refueled we went back out there and then we're just about to pull the cord and then we located him and so they send you down on what they so we hovered over top above the tree line which is about i don't know maybe 200 feet or so and they drop you on what they call a forest penetrator which is like you know an anchor or like, I don't even know how to, yeah, it looks like an anchor. So basically you sit with this iron fork between your legs. It's <laughs> so pleasant sounding. It's not as uncomfortable <laughs> as it sounds, but it's definitely not comfortable. So you hang on to this thing and they drop you on a cable. They lower you down and then drop you on the ground and then take off. And at that time, when you're flying around on Hueys, that's a Vietnam bird. Right. So you'd have to go with two packs. You had your one, your medical pack, which was about 75 pounds. Then you had your survival pack, which had to have 72 hours of survival gear to be able uh, to survive in the woods for a few days in, in case something happened. And when you're flying out there in Huey's, like something would always happen. Yeah. It was ran out of gas or something broke or whatever. Sure. It's a good bird, but it's not a... You know, <laughs> You had a chance to stay out there. So he went out there on two packs. And so here I am with, you know, about 150 pounds of kit and then realized just after an avalanche, so I sunk to my chest <laughs> and I couldn't move. So now, and I got to make about, about a, about a hundred, 125 yards over to the patient. So I had to kind of, uh, j- climb out of that hole that I was in that I postled myself in and, and shimmy over on my belly, like a fish out of water because I couldn't <laughs> put any pr- direct pressure down. Cause I would sink in the snow so I rolled over and then found found an area, found the patient, stabilized him, and he was in a, you know, he wasn't doing too well. And so I stabilized him. Luckily, the bird stayed in the hover, and they came back around. And I was able to find kind of like a little bit more of a higher ground where it wasn't as deep, but he couldn't move. He had busted his leg. So when he, the avalanche hit, of course, his, his feet were in the snow, so it snapped his leg. And so he couldn't move. So I had to carry him and it sunk. This one was a little more shallow. It was about like about waist Mm. height. But, uh, and I'm like, oh, it's only right over there. I can carry this guy over. So I kind of put him across my shoulders and holding and stabilizing his leg when I went over there. But I tell you what, when you talk about running in sand, it's like trying to move in waist deep snow with, you know, 150, 125 pounds of kit and and a dude across your shoulders. It was like, by the time I got there, I don't think there was, one part of my body that wasn't sweating. It was, <laughs> it went from freezing to sweating like <laughs> real fast. And, uh, we brought him up and then, uh, flew him to a local hospital and landed there and, and got him over there. It was, a uh, it was great. We were able to pull him out of there, but really sad. He lost his fiance and his best friend. Yeah. And cause I was talking to him on the way back and I said, uh, you know, were you alone? Like, right. I didn't see anybody else. And he said, yeah, I, you know, he told me the story and, mm-hmm. 
kind of like an, you know, like an awkward silence. Like, you don't want to talk about it. You right. just, all you can say is, you know, I'm really sorry. Right. There's not much. And we went back out there and kind of rolled around a little bit and see if we can find any sign of life. And there was just no sign. Wow. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. I remember that. So did, is that the same place you were when you became infamous with that photo of you that was, weren't you speed roping or something? Do you remember the picture that I'm talking about? There was a, and it wasn't on like an air force website at some point or whatever, but you were like speed roping down. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm like 90% sure it, it, it may have been. And that may have been train photo or something. Yeah, that was, uh, so yeah, that was it. They actually had us, uh, they did it for air force, uh, airman magazine, I believe. That's it. Yeah. And they had us go back out and reenact it. That's why it's like a beautiful day, blue oh. sky. So it wasn't action photos cause we didn't travel with the news crew. Oh, I gotcha. And, uh, so we went out into the same area and kind of reenacted the entire scene. And the, the person I was carrying was, uh, I believe a pilot or a, somebody from the squadron. Gotcha. But we had to reenact it. Yeah. So we didn't, we don't travel with our own news crew. So those weren't action <laughs> shots, but they were, uh, it was, yeah. uh, it was definitely fun. It was a good time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So there was a, we had a couple of really good, uh, options. There's another person who was stuck on the side. Uh, they fell off, they were climbing and they fell and it was about a 250 foot drop off the, this rock face, but there was a shelf that was sticking out maybe about 36 inches, maybe seven, eight feet long. And he fell and landed on that thought he broke his back. Uh, that was another one we had to get on. So they dropped me similar on a forest penetrator, but because of the rotors were so close, they had to get me closer to the mountain. The rotors were so close that they had to kind of like swing and bank a little bit. So they'd swing the rope over. And he had stabilizers and anchor ropes over there because some other climbers came down and, and, uh, anchored in to watch over them. And they're the ones who called us. So the helicopter had to like go into a hover and then almost like sway one side to swing me at the bottom. So as I went over, kind of swung and then grabbed onto the rope and then let go of the penetrator. And then they took off and they ran, they were running out of gas. So they had to split and they're like, Hey, we'll, we'll be back in about an hour. We got to go get gas. And I'm like, okay, so here I am, you know, on the side of this mountain on this little shelf trying to stabilize this guy. And I was like, I sure hope they remember where I am at. And we're sitting there and it got to like right about an hour sun setting, starting to get a little cold. And I'm like, all right, we may have to figure out how we're going to do this, but they ended up coming back and then, uh, we were able to get them out of there. So we dropped them, uh, put down a Stokes and, uh, which is basically a netted steel mesh, litter that stabilized a person for helo operations and we're able to put them on there and then clip in as well and then went up and that was another incident we took but there so was how a lot do they of really prioritize good. i'm assuming because like so so do they have multiple idmts at the area instruct so in other words like do you go on call for the like the rescue side so maybe there's the yeah. school going on so there's like one or two dedicated to the school and then you have one or two on standby to go for the rescue operations yeah i don't remember the call schedule i i want to say it was like a week at a time okay and it just rotated around so it's it wasn't anything that i did that was like anything awesome or special it's just like we just i was on call one week somebody else was on call next week and that just happened to be when i was on call wow that's nuts that is but awesome. that's also leaving out like those are those are fun stories, but it's also leaving out a lot of the uh, goofy stories where I've done some pretty, uh, pretty dumb things. <laughs> if you're listening to this on a podcast medium, please find part two in the episode list.